Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. In a historic win for international human rights, AAA, the membership of the American Anthropological Association, recently voted to endorse a boycott of Israeli academic institutions by an overwhelming margin of 71% of voters. So how did this come to pass, when many other U.S. academic associations have so far failed to achieve similar results? And is there something inherent to the discipline of anthropology that helps explain this success? Khalil Bendib spoke with two leaders of this boycott movement. He first spoke to Dr. Jessica Winnegar, a sociocultural anthropologist at Northwestern University. Professor Winnegar is a founding member of the Anthro Boycott Collective. Later in the program, we hear Khalil's conversation with Dr. Nadia Abulhaj, a professor in the Department of Anthropology at Bernard College and Columbia University and co-director of the Center for Palestine Studies at Columbia. Professor Winnegar, a few days ago, the American Anthropological Association, AAA, the membership of that association voted to endorse a resolution to boycott Israeli academic institutions, and an impressive 71% of participants voted in favor. This makes the AAA America's largest academic association endorsing the Palestinian call for an academic boycott of Israel. As a way of introduction, Professor, could you tell us a little bit about AAA? and also briefly about your role in this boycott effort. Sure. AAA is the American Anthropological Association that was formed about 100 years ago as the professional association of anthropologists working both in U.S. colleges and universities, as well as anthropologists working in professional settings outside of the academy. It currently has around 12,000 members. It also has various sections of members around different specialties, such as the Middle East section, which played a large role in galvanizing support for the boycott, as well as providing regional expertise for the boycott. I myself became involved in the boycott movement within anthropology in an earlier campaign, which was from 2014 to 2016, where I was part of a collective that brought a similar resolution to boycott Israeli academic institutions in front of the AAA. That resolution did not pass at the time by just 39 votes, which was less than 1% of the... It was in 2016, uh, wasn't it? Right, 2016. But we started education on the issue around 2014 because we found that Many anthropologists, like many Americans, were not very familiar with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the Palestinian call for international solidarity. So our education started two years before the vote. So the Anthropological Association has managed what others have failed to do so far. Why the anthropologist as opposed to, say, the sociologist or the psychologist of America? Is there something inherent to your discipline? that makes it more prone to a concern for human rights in general? Or is there something in the politics or economics of the study of anthropology? Well, I think that there is something inherent 
to the discipline. In fact, the AAA has a code of ethics and a declaration of support of human rights. Anthropology as a profession has long considered itself to be to stand on the side of social justice and historically standing up for marginalized peoples around the world. Of course, anthropology has a history of not doing that, but there is a fundamental kind of focus in anthropology of supporting human rights and speaking up against systems of power. And a matter of fact, the American Anthropological Association has said that it has an ethical responsibility to protest and oppose systems that do not provide people with the means to secure the full realization of their humanity. So that's in a declaration and a code of ethics. And it is about anthropos. It's the humans. It's not white people or Europeans or it's not restricted to any special group of people. No, not at all. Matter of fact, the American Anthropological Association has in the past and still does take positions and endorse boycotts in relationship to struggles of people all over the world, including in the United States. So it's a pretty broad based approach to human rights and commitment to social justice. The BDS movement was originally launched in 2005 by Omar Barghouti in Palestine, and it has spread worldwide ever since. Tell us a little more about the development of that boycott, how it started and how it evolved over the years. Sure. Well, I think one key aspect to mention is that anthropological work on Palestine and Palestinians was kind of marginalized in the discipline until around the time of the Second Intifada in Palestine, at which point it became, not solely because of that, but around the turn of the millennium, it became more acceptable to do research on Palestine and Palestinians. And a whole new generation of anthropologists emerged who were doing that. The reason it hadn't been so acceptable before is because of the political aspects of the issue, there was still a lot of kind of knee-jerk Zionism in anthropology that did not accept work on Palestinians for fear that it was anti-Semitic. So I would say the seeds of the boycott go back as far as the call to boycott in the sense that anthropologists were doing, publishing a lot of research on Palestine and Palestinians. And so more and more anthropologists were becoming aware of the situation and what Palestinians face. And then I would say it was the increasing right-wing turn of the Israeli government, the 2009 war on Gaza, that really catapulted members of our collective, which eventually became the Emperor Boycott Collective, to start organizing for boycotts. So like I mentioned, probably between 2012 and 2014, there were people starting to have conversations about it, people walking through the halls of the annual meeting and having people sign petitions in support of Palestinian rights. But it was really in 2014 when a group of scholars, one of whom was myself, got together and said, wait, we could maybe do this. We could actually bring this boycott measure before our association. I think the fact that it took nearly 10 years from the original Palestinian call for the boycott to be brought before the association is is too long and certainly 20 years almost 20 years for it to pass so it just tells you how palestinian academics um, and culture workers had to wait for such a big win on the boycott quite a formidable fight 
you yourself are also specifically in the study of Middle East and North Africa. Have you seen a parallel opening up of that field of study just beyond the anthropologist, uh, the anthropological field? Do, do you see improvement and people more open to diverse voices in that field as opposed to just a, a Zionist hegemony that used to be there? And the field of, of Middle East studies. Oh, and- Middle East studies, yeah. Yes, it's really important to remember that the Middle East Studies Association recently passed a boycott measure. And this represents a massive sea change in the views of individual members, as well as the membership of that association and its politics. Middle East studies, I would say, in the past 20, 25 years, has become much more critical of colonial systems of power and knowledge making as a result of some important developments in that field, not the least of which is the publication and and gradual adoption of the theories of Edward Said on Orientalism, but also his writings on Israel-Palestine. So definitely the field of Middle East studies has opened up on this topic with more and more research being done with Palestinians, on Palestinian history and Israeli history to the point where the majority of Middle East studies scholars, their research is not shaped by a Zionist imperative. Rather, it is shaped by a scholarly imperative to understand how systems of power operate. And that led many of these scholars to vote for boycott in the Middle East Studies Association vote. As you just mentioned, in 2016, an earlier version of Anthro Boycott, as it is called, failed to pass. Yet seven years later, it is voted in a landslide. What Mm -hmm. happened in the meantime that made the 2023 push Mm -hmm. successful? And what did you learn from these previous Mm -hmm. attempts? I would say three major factors led to our success in this round as opposed to prior rounds. The first are the actions of the state of Israel. It has become increasingly clear to international human rights organizations and the international community, as well as left and liberal Jewish organizations, that the Israeli state has absolutely no intention of ceasing the occupation, but rather is entrenching the occupation to the degree that human rights organizations within Israel and Palestine and internationally now refer to it as a system of apartheid. And now we see the right-wing authoritarianism of the Israeli state in full force, as well as the various attacks on the territories that have occurred since the last boycott attempt. So the first factor is (laughs) the actions of the Israeli state. The second, I would say, is a shift in the demographics of the discipline in anthropology. Anthropology has become significantly less white than it was historically. So the fact that a lot of anthropologists are coming from more diverse class and racial and ethnic and national heritage backgrounds has actually helped to open up a conversation about solidarities across different oppressed groups. And I wrote a piece with Laura Deeb after the last, who's another anthropologist of Lebanon, after the last 
defeat. And we surmise that the sort of white liberal ethos of traditional old school anthropology still had a hold on the discipline. And that ethos supports ideas of like dialogue and both sides matter and intercultural communication across Israelis and Palestinians. And we argue that those things don't work. I mean, they don't work to completely solve the problem. And so the demographic shift in anthropology is another key factor. And I would say the third key factor, which is related to that, is a new emphasis on decolonizing the discipline of anthropology. Anthropologists are going through a reckoning about the history of their discipline and the structure of knowledge production, akin to earlier reckonings that have happened in the discipline, but we're in another renaissance of reckoning of decolonization. And I think a lot of anthropologists came to realize that Israel is a settler colonial state like the United States, like Australia, and anthropology has played a role in justifying some of the aspects of settler colonialism. So that's another aspect I can talk more about in terms of the specific relationship that anthropology has to the Israeli state. Yes. Why don't you give us a little bit of that? I think another reason that many anthropologists came to support the boycott is they learned that the disciplines, methods, and theories have been used by the Israeli state to advance the apartheid regime and the expropriation of Palestinian territories. For example, archaeology. Departments of archaeology in Israeli universities work closely with the military, work closely with Israeli settler organizations, and they do so to conduct excavations and research in the occupied territory. And that's an explicit violation of international law, as well as uh, UNESCO's guidelines. A lot of times with these excavations, Palestinian lands are expropriated. The knowledge produced through archeology span is biased knowledge that leads to claims that historic Palestine was Jewish and it should be a Jewish national home. And so we see that anthropology in particular, has been used to further the goals of the Israeli security state, as well as the Israeli Zionist construction of its own history. It is my impression, and perhaps you can correct me, that the science of anthropology as a whole seems under attack lately, at least seen from mm-hmm. the Bay Area here in, in mm-hmm. Berkeley, where UC Berkeley anthropologists have been struggling to keep a venerable anthropology library open. Mm. It was quite a struggle to those who claim that anthropology should remain strictly, quote unquote, apolitical. What do you say to those who say, no, no, this is science, it should be above politics? I can say anthropological theorizing, as well as theorizing in the humanities and social sciences over the past at least three decades has more than proven that science is not inherently apolitical, that all forms of science contain within them certain kinds of politics or politics can affect science. This also goes back to some of the insights of of the Palestinian academic Edward Said in terms of knowledge being power and power influencing the construction of knowledge. We just had the Oppenheimer film in the theaters 
you could say that was just science, but if you go and watch the film, you can see how that science was partly produced through a certain kind of politics. So anthropologists generally take the position that not only is no science neutral, but to claim that it is neutral actually is bad science. So as anthropologists, we state, (laughs) so as anthropologists, we think that we have to recognize what the politics are um, of our own research in order to consistently do better research. A few years ago, behind the same microphone that we're using now, I had the opportunity to ask Professor Noam Chomsky why he vehemently opposes boycotting Israel. And he argued that, first of all, this would hurt the Palestinian cause. And that secondly, it would be also unethical to single out Israeli academics. Mm-hmm. Explain to us why you disagree with this opinion and how these restrictions on Israeli institutions would actually benefit the Palestinian mm-hmm. cause and not hurt it. Professor Chomsky, in my opinion, disingenuously argues. Well, it is interesting that Noam Chomsky, who is not a Palestinian, is claiming to Palestinians that, I mean, essentially he's saying that they don't know what's best for them. Exactly, exactly. And that is a very colonial attitude that we actually faced with some of our anthropology colleagues who opposed the boycott in this round. We trust Palestinians and Palestinian civil society to know what we can do to help support their quest for liberation. Palestinians are currently suffering so much from the Israeli state and the military security complex that boycotting Israeli academic institutions would affect them much less than how they're already being affected. I mean, Palestinian universities in the West Bank and Gaza, their faculty do not generally have freedom of movement. The universities have been bombed, have been invaded by the Israeli military. Students and faculty are regularly imprisoned. International scholars cannot get visas or permissions from the Israeli government to study in these places. Palestinian students in Israeli universities are subject to significant discrimination in housing and in scholarships as compared to Jewish students because they cannot serve in the military. And if you serve in the military, you have certain benefits with housing and scholarships. And so the idea that a boycott of Israeli academic institutions would somehow harm Palestinians doesn't make sense compared to the harm that they're being subjected to in the current situation. Did you also say that he said, why, why single out Israel? Yes, I yes. Can deal with that. Okay. Was unethical. That's a classic argument by Zionists yeah. who say, yeah. look, maybe Israel's not perfect, but why do you focus on Israel? That's right. anti-Semitic. Why don't you look at worse exactly. Well, like elsewhere? Right. Well, like I said, the American Anthropological Association has engaged in boycotts and actions related to other issues around the world. So just because one is boycotting certain Israeli academic institutions does not mean that one can't also engage or answer a call to from another organization to boycott other academic institutions in another country. So for example, there was a call to boycott the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign after it illegally rescinded the job offer to Palestinian activist and scholar Stephen Salaita. And 
many academics then boycotted an American university for that. So just because you oppose one country's actions doesn't mean that you can't already also have a politics that has you potentially boycotting or criticizing actions of other countries around the world. Certainly yeah. South Africa is another good example right. of what happened. BDS opponents in this country have been on a rampage over the past decade, passing a slew mm -hmm. of new laws to ban BDS and to punish institutions that refuse to abide by these bans. Given mm -hmm. all the obstacles, how arduous how, and possibly heroic a journey it was for your group and throw boycott to arrive at this mm -hmm. impressive success of 71% of voting members endor endorsing the boycott. In the book you co-wrote with another professor, Lara Deeb, titled Anthropology's Politics, Disciplining the Middle East. You describe an academic climate of fear and self-censorship in the U.S. A number of prominent academics, such as Norman Finkelstein and Stephen Salaita, who you just cited, have come under attack in this country. Some have lost jobs even after obtaining mm -hmm. tenure. Given mm -hmm. this climate of what I personally would call neo-McCarthyism mm -hmm. when it comes to Israel and U.S. academia, what makes AAA so bold as to pass a boycott like anthro-boycott and aren't scholars like yourself worried about these type of intimidation tactics? And how would you preserve the measure of mm -hmm. academic freedom in such a climate? Well, there's a couple answers to that question. I mean, one is that those of us who have been working for boycott and working on Middle East issues more broadly have seen these tactics over and over and over again. They are well-known tactics, and we know by now how to confront them. For example, in the legal realm, there is now an organization founded within the last 10 years called Palestine Legal, which provides expert legal advice on these sort of spurious legal attacks on boycott, for example. The tactics are now so well known and typically nowadays do not come to any extreme kind of fruition. So for example, the lawsuit against the American Studies Association was thrown out. There has been no lawsuit against the Middle East Studies Association now. Essentially, we're not concerned by this larger environment, but I will say there are members of our collective who do not have tenure, who are graduate students, who work in Israeli universities, who supported, who worked in our collective, but do not have their names on the website to mm. protect themselves. Um, mm. Israeli academics who work with us are particularly at risk of potentially losing their citizenship. So people know how to protect themselves uh, if they don't have the protection of tenure. But I will say that this climate of neo-McCarthyism that you talked about is widespread in the United States now, not just around this issue, but around Black studies, the teaching of African-American history. We can look at the state of Florida. There's actually some discussions within the AAA now as to whether or not we should hold our next meeting. Meeting in, um, I think, 2024 is scheduled to take place in Florida. So now there's a discussion of whether or not that meeting should take place. So we at Anthro Boycott see this struggle as linked to many struggles happening in the U.S., Israel, and around the world against this kind of 
right-wing authoritarian lawfare, as well as attacks on rights, whether those are academic freedom rights or human rights. Zionists in this country are notorious for playing hardball, and they usually go for the jugular. They're not known for taking no for an answer. They're spoiled by their power. Uh, Speaking of of lawsuits, just as anthro boycott, push for AAA's boycott for a vote was underway, a few months ago, Lori Lowenthal Marcus, legal director of the Deborah Project, which claims to represent people, quote, facing discrimination in educational settings because they are Jewish mm-hmm. and pro-Israel. This lawyer threatened to sue Anthro Boycott. What is the status of that threat? Well, this lawyer threatened to sue the AAA. So I don't know what the status of that threat is, but our legal advisors and Anthro Boycott looked at the lawsuit and it doesn't hold any legal water. I want to reiterate or iterate that Anthro Boycott is in no way anti-Semitic, nor is the boycott of Israeli academic institutions, but it is a, a scare tactic to use the law to try and claim that there is discrimination. My guess is these lawsuits that have come up are, are mainly meant to scare people and to just give them a lot of headache because in the end, they are not winnable. Even the laws in some states that discourage boycotts aimed at Israel really cannot be applied to academic associations like the AAA. Yes, not surprisingly, these lawyers are making use of this newest and shiniest weapon in their Mm -hmm. arsenal, and that is the self-serving anti-Semitism definition of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance adopted by the Commonwealth of Virginia. Can this boycott be misconstrued somehow as anti-Semitic by any stretch of the imagination? And is this uh, so-called definition of anti-Semitism any different than the worn-out tactic of blaming the victim? to deflect criticism of Israel's Mm. continued and blatant violations of human rights. No, I mean, I think the IHRA is just the latest in a long line of attempts to deflect criticism from the state of Israel by claiming that any criticism is anti-Semitic, that criticism of Zionism is anti-Semitic. But Jewish Voice for Peace, which counts tens of thousands of members in the United States, endorsed this boycott. The Rabbinical Council of Jewish Voice for Peace endorsed this boycott. I think that what we are seeing is a real shift in the American Jewish community around the question of Israel. And the perhaps older generation, shall we say, Zionists are very threatened by the move to the left among younger Jews, but also the recapturing of an earlier anti-Zionist strain of activism among Jewish Americans and an anti-McCarthyist strain of activism among Jewish Americans. So that is now becoming very influential again. That is a really, really important development, I think, to kind of dissuade folks from the notion that a criticism of the state of Israel is somehow a criticism of the Jewish religion. Professor Winninger, over the past few years, similar boycott efforts have developed, such as the ones by the UTLA, United Teachers of Los Angeles, or the ones of the United Educators of San Francisco. 
which on May 19 voted to endorse BDS and called on President Biden to seize aid to Israel and many others as well. Do all these separate campaigns cross-pollinate in terms of strategy? Do they learn from one another? And what advice or recommendations would you have for other academic institutions that may be inspired by AAA's recent success? Yes, all of these movements cross-pollinate, and not only with each other, but with other social movements, other anti-racist, anti state violence, social movements happening in the U.S. and internationally. And I see that there's a lot of cross-movement ally work going on, as well as tactic sharing. And that is just, we're in a real excellent moment for activism within academia and without on this issue and many other issues right now. I think that anyone in any other academic association either of higher ed or in secondary or teachers unions, would do well to start with a campaign of education like we did 10 years ago, educating membership on the issues. That seems to be the very first step and it can take a long time because people are afraid of blowback. They're afraid of backlash. I would encourage anyone to reach out to members of Anthro Boycott. We have a website, anthroboycott.org. Um, where you can reach out and get solidarity and advice for organizing. But that website is also really rich with materials and FAQ, resources, a document on myths and facts about the boycott, and many essays and testimonies from Palestinians, from Israelis, from anthropologists, and from others that I think would be very helpful to anyone seeking to bring a measure before their association. And I just want to say one more thing. One of the criticisms that we received an anthro boycott is, well, it's not really going to change anything. And I thought about this because you said President Biden is act, asked, being asked to cease, cease arms sales to Israel, aid to Israel. We in anthropology understand the power of symbolism. These individual organizations enacting the boycott may not have immediate major material effects on Israel, but the collective power of the symbolic actions of boycott does have an effect. First of all, it shows Palestinians who are living under a constant state of siege that there is hope that we support them. But also, the Israeli government is very scared of boycott. That's why it ranks it in its top five BDS, in its top five national security threats. Symbolic power is itself power. So I would encourage anyone who is a member of another organization seeking to uh, make this come forward to first start an education program and then get a good collective together to make it happen. And as you said, information is power. And that's at the center of the campaign. Correct. Uh, the website you just mentioned, is that the same as savageminds.org or is that separate? It's separate. It's anthroboycott.org. Because I also came across this other one that's called savagemind.org, which I found intriguing and interesting. It also yeah, that's a collection of essays from you and others. And I was going to ask you about it, but maybe the one you mentioned is more important. It is. And those essays that we put on Savage Minds, that was from the last campaign. Those are the really effective ones are on the current Anthro Boycott. Okay. Anthroboycott.org. One word, anthroboycott.org. And as a last question, some BDS opponents of course, claim that BDS did not really originate in Palestine to try to somehow delegitimize it. Did the AAA coordinate 
and collaborate with Palestinian activists throughout this effort? And was it symbolically or practically important for your group to do that? The AAA did not collaborate with Palestinian activists, but the Anthro Boycott Collective, absolutely, we were in constant collaboration and communication with the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel. We were in constant collaboration with Palestinian anthropologists and other academics based in the West Bank and Gaza, as well as students, anthropology students based in, in those locations, as well as with the Palestinian Federation of unions of professors and employees. It was very important for our group to be in constant touch with folks in Palestine um, to make sure that we were executing this campaign in the way that they thought best reflected their needs and their message. No, you're right. I didn't mean AAA. I meant your group within AAA. Because we had some issues with the AAA throughout all of this, the AAA leadership. Jessica Winnegar is a sociocultural anthropologist who specializes in cultural politics. Her body of work focuses on how people invest particular social arenas, such as art world, education, and political protest with liberating potentials, while at the same time reproducing hierarchies of gender, class, race, ethnicity, and generation. She's also a founding member of Anthro Boycott Collective. She spoke with Khalil Bendib. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. Last month, the 12,000-member Strong American Anthropological Association, or AAA, voted by 71% to support the Palestinian call to boycott Israeli universities complicit in Israel's crime against Palestinians. Khalil Bendib spoke with Professor Nadia Abulhaj about AAA's groundbreaking decision to impose an academic boycott on Israeli academic institutions. Professor Abul Hajj, BDS opponents argue that the boycott divestment sanctions movement is not actually authentically a Palestinian movement that's actually foreign-based. What is the point they're trying to make, do you know? Well, that's interesting. I've heard many arguments against BDS but that wasn't one that was very common at the AAA. But it, it makes sense to me in the following way. The argument against calling for boycotts, BDS in general, but 
boycotts of academic institutions, which I've been more directly involved in. The opposition to it keeps saying you're singling out Israel. There are so many other authoritarian and repressive regimes in the world. Why are you picking on Israel? And therefore, this signals in their words, I mean, in the accusation anti-Semitism. If one makes clear that one's responding to a call, if one admits in some sense, which is our argument, we didn't initiate this boycott call or the BDS movement more broadly, obviously, we're responding to a movement on the ground in Palestine, then the question is not, why are we singling out Israel? We're responding to a call and we're acting in solidarity. And there's no reason to assume that we wouldn't respond to other boycott, academic, for example, boycott calls if they were organized in other places and we were called upon to do so. So I think putting this on us as if we're initiating is part of the accusation of you're singling out one state in a world in which there are so many problems. Yes, it's also a subtle way of robbing Palestinians of their own agency, uh, as usual. Professor Noam Chomsky has steadfastly opposed sanctions against Israel, especially the academic boycott claiming that, if anything, it would hurt the Palestinians. As a Palestinian-American, what do you make of this argument? I don't think it's Chomsky's call to make. Again, we are responding to a call. This is a movement on the ground. And I am a Palestinian-American, absolutely. But I see myself as also as profoundly responding to what my colleagues and friends and everybody else in Palestine who are really more directly or who are directly suffering the effects of Israeli rule are calling upon us to do. And if they are saying this is what we want, and if they are saying this is actually going to help our struggle, and we can talk about why, then I think one has to respond to that. It, it brings us back to what you said, which is, in fact, denying Palestinians the right to articulate and their own political strategies and desires, right? I just don't think it's Noam Chomsky's place to say it's harming Palestinians. That's not what we're hearing from the majority. I mean, it's got widespread civil society support. It is and has widespread support among Palestinians who are citizens of the state of Israel who will be affected. So why is Chomsky the one who's going to tell us that it's actually harming Palestinians? It's a little bit patronizing. I interviewed him and he actually said these words to me. The field of anthropology in the past has been used to justify certain colonialist agendas, is my understanding. I know this is a vast question, but can you give us a, some examples of how this field of knowledge has perhaps been instrumentalized in the colonization of Palestine or in the justification of that? Yeah. You know, interestingly, if one looks at the American discipline, there has not been a whole lot of anthropology focusing on Palestine. And that has to do with the whole colonial history, right? I mean, anthropologists, whether in the UK, let's just focus on the Anglo world and the US, the discipline was born of white Europeans and white European derived Americans studying their own indigenous or colonized populations, right? But the discipline of Israeli anthropology has actually been involved in studying what is called in Israel, I mean, sociology and anthropology, both the Arab minority, right? And in talking about the Arab minority, of course, one is constructing a, one is not calling them Palestinian, but there was this whole developmentalist and culturalist set of assumptions about the inability of the Arab citizens of the state to modernize, their inability, therefore, to be fully integrated. So in that context, 
one had very much of that colonial discourse, which I think it's worth noting stood in real contrast in the same period, if you think the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I would just say it was both anthropology and sociology and the Orientalists call themselves the Orientalists, right? Orientalism in Israel. There was a real contrast between how they studied so-called Arab Jews on the one hand and the Arab minority on the other. So in the case of the Arab minority, in other words, Palestinians who were divided up into Christians, Druze, Muslims and Bedouin, a separate category. So to begin with, it was never seen as one cultural or sociological group. Again, the argument is they're backwards and they can't integrate, although the argument about the Druze is more complicated. I'll leave that out. But the argument of many of the same disciplines and scholars about Mizrahi Jews, people who came to be known as Mizrahi Jews, who had originated in the Arab world is that they're really Jewish, so they can be integrated, that somehow their Arab backwardness was epiphenomenal, not fundamental in the way it was for the quote unquote Arab minority population in Israel. So yeah, it really participated in a kind of understanding of how one rules, right? What the separate education system was going to be, what are the grounds of citizenship, et cetera. All these disciplines and anthropology was one of them, was were central to constructing that kind of absolute outsiderness and difference. And then of course, to the territories. I mean, once you start military rule, the question of what quote-unquote Arab culture is has played into all sorts of things, including, for example, techniques of interrogation and torture. It's interesting what you're saying about the contrast between how Arab Jews and Arab Christians, Arab Muslims, Druze works in, in, in Israel. I've run into this myself, this uh, idea that somehow Jewishness in anybody who's Jewish and something Jewish from Morocco, or Jewish from Algeria, or Jewish from Canada, where the Jewish part predominates. That's the essence of a human being. It's not just a religion, it's a fundamental identity. And that, for example, Moroccan Jews were seen as Jews who happened to be in Morocco, rather than Moroccans who happened to have that faith, that Jewish faith. It's very interesting how Arabs are only those who are not Jewish Arabs. I know you've written quite extensively about these concepts of uh, identity. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, on the one hand, there's, of course, when you think Moroccan Jews, Algerian Jews, Tunisian Jews, there's a long kind of French colonial history that pried Jews out of their larger Arabness, so to speak, and classified them differently, and they had different rights, etc., But to think about the Israeli state, of course, Zionism was premised upon that, right? It was premised upon dissent. It's a settler nation, as I like to call it. So yes, it's a settler project, but it's a settler project that was nationalist from the very beginning, right? And it was a nationalism imagined very much in the kind of romantic form of German nationalism. It is about dissent. Now, of course, the theory of dissent comes through Judaism as a religion and the biblical tradition, but it's still this romantic notion of dissent. And if dissent is what defines you, you cannot actually get rid of that essential part of yourself. And of course, that was the the other side. That was the Nazi ideology. It didn't matter if people converted, they were still Jews. But the whole question of the ingathering of the exiles, as it is called in Israel, in other words, the project of settling, where Jews from around the world would be brought in, the assumption was there's some fundamental peoplehood here that despite all these religious and cultural differences could be merged back into this new Hebrew self. So the cultural and the religious differences were epiphenomenal to this larger project. And of course, dissent has never been entirely, you can't entirely separate it 
from the religious tradition, because on the one hand, labor Zionists are secular, etc. But it's the Bible and the biblical history that gives one not just a right to Palestine, but also one's understanding of Jewishness as this structure of genealogical descent. I had the opportunity to interview Shlomo Sands, the Israeli Mm -hmm. historian author, when he wrote his book, Who Invented the Jewish People. He pointed out to me that in Israeli universities, there were two history departments, one based on one might call scientific history, proven history, and the other one was biblical history. And he said, why not two mathematics department? Why not two physics department? (laughs) But this whole idea of uh, this myth of return of the Jews, people who were just returning 2,000 years later, it's a very interesting idea. Just say one thing about what Shlomozan was saying. On the one hand, it's true institutionally, but there are all sorts of fields, well, two different fields I've written about that consider themselves scientific, and there are archaeology on the one hand, and population genetics in particular in the 50s and 60s. But they too relied on the biblical narrative. They could only interpret the evidence they found, and it's true all the way up through genomics research today. These are like these, particularly in archaeology at the time, biblical archaeology is considered a science, you know, natural scientists may argue with it. But both of those fields to reconstruct history scientifically needed the biblical narrative because without it, they couldn't interpret the data. The narrative gave them a way to read data that comes not in narrative form. So where I would disagree with him is I don't think it's as sharply separated in general as that comment suggests. Professor Edward Hedge, AAA's recently approved boycott of Israeli institutions of knowledge has reminded everyone how political even anthropology can be that human sciences are not exempt from political biases. With the advent of a new generation of academics such as yourself, has also highlighted certain progress in the movement to decolonize Western institutions of knowledge that have traditionally buttressed Western imperialism and colonialism. One major figure in this positive evolution obviously was the late Edward Said, father of post-colonial studies, or one of the fathers, Tell us, in your opinion, how you see this movement evolving at a time when the backlash from entrenched Zionist and generally colonial interests is as fierce as as it has ever been. So I came here to go to college many decades ago. And when I did, there was literally no space on college campuses to be critical of Israel. And I had come from Lebanon. It was a little hard not to be. So I would say, and, you know, so Edward Said, obviously, his, you know, he opened up a whole field of post-colonial studies, although interestingly, as Ann Stoller pointed out in a book recently, post-colonial studies really largely veered away from the question of Palestine for a long time. So I would say over the 20 years, years I've been in the academy teaching at this point, there has been a dramatic shift in the space for a conversation, right? So when I first did research for my dissertation, a lot of people told me, don't do it. Don't do it until you are tenured. And I did it because I thought at that point, well, this is what I want to do and why would I back off? But I think that now there are many more of us who are established in the academy who can protect younger scholars and and encourage them to do work that is critical, much more critical in relation to Palestine and lots of other questions. I'll get back to that. I'm not being Pollyannish of the risks. I think partly there's been also a big demographic shift in you know, the population, there are many more 
you know, first gen immigrants, kids of immigrants, I think in college today than 20 years ago. It might say something about the de demographics of the American population writ large. And many of those come from families who came from, you know, formerly colonized countries, right? So some of the shift in the, in the conversation is also a shift in the constitution of the academy, which I think probably is far more diverse along immigrant lines or, you know, parents who are immigrant lines than it is along colleagues who are black or Hispanic or indigenous, which is itself kind of a, like something worth noting. So when I think about what happened in the Anthropological Association, it was very clear. So seven or eight years ago, when we tried this the first time, we had a discussion during the AAA in November, and it was an in-person discussion. We read a thousand people in the room, and the vote in favor of the boycott was you know, north of 99%. But most people in the room were younger. I mean, it tends to be younger anthropologists, both PhD students and younger scholars who go to these meetings. The older you get, you stop going. And when we lost the vote by 39 votes, it was a statistical tie, you know, that was an electronic vote. So all that generation of people who don't necessarily come could vote. And I remember saying then, you know, give it 10 years. It's really going to shift when a lot of these much more senior people who are really against it, you know, there's a vitriolic defense of Israel grounds. There's the sort of, I think, somewhat disingenuous liberal grounds. We're all on your side and we have to protect Israeli academics. But there's also just a kind of older generation sense that the academy is a particularly pristine place. It's an ivory tower. It's above politics and we have to protect it no matter what. And that's not the sensibility of a younger generation who grew up in a world, but also is educated in a way to understand power and institutions in very different ways, including liberals, not just you know the old Marxists, which used to be the people who stood out. So I see that as the shift. And I think the pushback being so severe is, of course, in response to that shift. You don't have to worry as much. I mean, years ago, I used to feel, you know, people would say, how could you do your research in Israel? And I was like, well, you know, it was the 90s. The Israelis didn't care. If the state is not under threat, academics are irrelevant. But the more there's this sense that the conversation is shift, the project of censoring and shutting it down gets more desperate again. So it's much more like it was in the 70s and up through the 80s and maybe early 90s than it is than it was in that interim period where in some ways post Oslo, I think Israel just felt like the game was over. So I think they're not unrelated to one another, why there's such kind of critical conversation on the one hand and a kind of hysterical effort to shut down any conversation on the other side. As an outspoken Palestinian American academic, have you been subjected to political pressures from school administrators or funders? I know you don't depend on funding yourself, but directly, but, and as a social scientist, how do you deal with such a fraught environment? Even tenure these days, not always necessarily ironclad. I mean, my tenure battle was very nasty and very public. And I ended up in the New York Times and various places. I'm generally widely accused of being an anti-Semite because that's the charge always when you are critical of Israel. You know, the fight over my tenure was very public. I was very lucky that I had lots of senior colleagues at Columbia and at Barnard who really stood on my side. And so did the key administrators at that moment. And I think perhaps because it was so public and so completely out of control, it almost made them it easier to defend me. And this was sort of 2006, 2007. So it's 
the height of the neocons in America. And are these institutions really going to let these radical right-wing figures determine the outcome of tenure at, you know, an institution that considers itself liberal? But yeah, I've gotten a lot of blowback. I've had death threats on email. I mean, I don't take them very seriously, but the harassment is really quite intense. And I guess how have I, you know, dealt with it? It's not that it wasn't very stressful, but there's also part of me that's felt, look, I walked into this political fight. I knew what I was walking into. People told me not to walk into it. But I did it because it was important. And I think the reality is politics is not always pleasant, even politics in terms of just being the, the voice of something and even within the academy. And that's sort of what you take on when you decide to take on an issue that is this entrenched. And then, of course, as I've gotten more established, I also then feel more and more it's really I'm the one that has to do this or stand up and be public when it needs to be done when I need to defend people because I'm not vulnerable anymore in the same way. But yeah, it's, I think harassment is very serious. I think people do lose tenure. You know, if I'd been in a different institution, I may well have lost tenure. I just had senior colleagues who were really good and who did what they needed to do. And that is clearly not the case everywhere. And also I think state legislatures are intervening in a way that ironically, private institutions with their private money may be less vulnerable in some sense, than public institutions where state legislatures can really come in and crack down. And as a final question, how do you see this recently approved boycott uh, by AAA? Do you see that as an important turning point in this struggle for Palestinian rights on, on American campuses? Is that something that uh, will be remembered 10 years from now as an important watershed? I think it's really important. It's the largest academic association so far to passed the boycott. It was passed by 71% of the vote. Yes, only 30%, 7% of the membership voted, but the normal voting in AAA elections is 15%. So many more people engaged than they did. And I do think it's significant and important. And I'm very glad that we actually won this vote. I think the most important thing about these votes in some ways, because as an institution, the AAA doesn't have that many ties to Israeli academic institutions. There are some, and it's going to have some consequences. But the most important thing is, you know, it's both a conversation that ends up in public. So we keep this question of Palestine in public. It gives voice to why people would want to boycott Israeli academic institutions, which allows a public discussion of both the Israeli state and, of course, the complicity of academic institutions in its regime of rule. It's a very violent regime of rule. And I think it's symbolically important in the sense of, drawing a line and saying, no, this cannot go on as normal. We cannot go on with these relations as if Israel is just one more liberal democratic state with its own racial problems. It's not the same. It's not the same when a state is formally a Jewish state. The U.S. is deeply racist. It is not in law a white Christian state. And I think that has to be emphasized over and over again. So the nature of the struggle is a very different one. Whether it's a watershed moment, I don't know. I think because anthropology as a discipline has struggled with its own colonial legacy of the more mainstream disciplines, it was probably the most likely to do this. Historians, sociologists, political scientists, they don't have the same legacy and haven't spent decades trying to think about what it means to decolonize the discipline. I'm not saying nobody in those fields thinks about it. I'm just saying it's been a kind of obsession of anthropology for quite some time now. 
So whether this signals other large associations, I don't know the answer to that, but it's important nevertheless. Nadia Bolhaj is Anne Whitney Olin Professor in the Department of Anthropology at Barnard College and Columbia University and co-director of the Center for Palestine Studies at Columbia. She spoke with Khalil Bendib about the American Anthropological Association's groundbreaking decision to impose an academic boycott on Israeli academic institutions. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.